Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. We live in a dog world. Dogs are extroverts naturally. Cats are introverts naturally. And it's, it's, you know, introverts are like cats living in a dog world. Everybody loves the dogs. People don't appreciate the cats. Well, suddenly the coronavirus epidemic turned us into cat world. And the cats really, really liked it a lot. And the dogs are suffering. The tables have been turned on the people like me. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Arthur Brooks is a social scientist, Harvard professor, and the author of multiple books. He also writes a column for The Atlantic about the tools for happiness, which he approaches with real latitude rather than just X will make you happy. I've been a reader of his column for some time, and when one particular instalment on introverts and extroverts caught my attention, I am fascinated by personality types and personality theories, I rung Arthur up to discuss it more. We discuss why introverts fared better during the pandemic but were more at risk of overwork, why extrovertism can tip into narcissism and even sociopathy, and what extroverts and introverts can learn from one another. Plus, we take a little detour into why more isn't always better. I start by asking Arthur, what is the biggest myth about introverts and extroverts? The biggest myth about introverts and extroverts is that you are one or the other. And if you are one or the other, you you can't act as if you were anything else, as if it were wired in, baked into your very soul. So you're born an introvert, you grow up an introvert, and you die an introvert, and you can never do anything about it. You cannot put on a different mask. You can't act in a different way, and that your personality is somehow immutable. That's a myth. That's so interesting hearing you say that because... The reason why I wanted to talk to you about this today is because I think there is a real trend, and I don't know if it's been here for a while, it feels relatively recent, um, to ascribe yourself the label of one or the other and then really lean into those personality types. How would you define an introvert, an extrovert, and the type that I only just learned about, an ambivert? So uh, it really depends on where you get your energy. So if you find that your batteries are recharged when you're by yourself and that they're discharged when you're with others, that doesn't mean that you're not a social person. It doesn't mean that you're not excellent with other people, that you can't have a job, 
you can't have a public face that is as charming as it could possibly be. It just means that it, it discharges your batteries to be around other people and doing public things, and you have to recharge by being alone. Whereas an extrovert, somebody who's a real extrovert, and by this, we're talking about a, a scale, where zero is the most introverted person, and 100 is the most extroverted person, and nobody is on those poles. But and there is no black and white. But just thinking about it in that way, an extrovert is somebody who tends to feel fatigued after being alone for too long. And then when she or he winds up in the presence of other people, especially a large group of people, highly social environment, gets more energy. And so the way to figure that out where you are on the scale is when you go to a party and you're there for an hour, just shaking hands and giving hugs and having conversations and laughing. If after an hour you're exhausted, you're more on the introverted side. And if after an hour you're wired and you have to go home and be alone for a little while before you can even get to sleep, you're more on the extroverted side. I did the test that you shared in your Atlantic column for which you got a result of 96.8 extroverts. So you are <laughs> almost a unicorn. And I got 85% extrovert. And then I did another test. Um, I think I found another one in, in one of the books I was reading. That came out as introvert. And then I did Marty Laney's, whose book, The Introvert, Advantages, a trove of information on this subject. And I came out as an ambivert. And I feel like that's the most likely outcome because when you were talking about parties just then I've always really struggled with where on earth I sit on that continuum because I dread going to a party and I think about all the ways I can get out of it and I get terrible social anxiety when I first get there and I always say I'm going to leave early I always stay till the end have a great mm. time but then have a hangover like a like not just a hangover but a sort of psychological hangover the next day <laughs> you're you're an extrovert with introverted characteristics or something like that there would be something in the in the diagnostics manual of of you know psychiatry that shows that one of these strange mixed personalities the truth is pandora we all have mixed personalities and the the attempt that we make through surveys that are blunt tools to figure out what we are what these these things they tend to to obscure the most interesting things rather than clarify the information. The reason for that is that it, it is actually the twisted, complicated, and complex nature of our personalities that that are the most interesting thing of all. Understanding ourselves is more than putting ourselves in one box or the other box. It's understanding that we're all kind of outside of these boxes, looking for new opportunities to relate to people and love people in new and interesting ways. And you know that's what you've found, that you take three different tests and it gives you three different results, depending on your point of view on three different days, probably. That's a very useful reminder because I think we live in, slash, I just embodied the tendency to self-define and self-diagnose at all times using really rudimentary <laughs> surveys that I found online. <laughs> Are most people likely to be a bit of both, to be on what, I mean, Carl Jung thought it was a continuum, didn't he? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This is a reason that I, I scored myself and, and, and self-disclosed my own result of, it, it's almost inconceivable that there would be a, an introvert, extrovert scale that would find me somewhere below the mean. Um, it, it, even if one puts me at 96.8, another one puts me at 80, I'm very unlikely to find I'm at 30 just because I do have these characteristics and they are so strong. But we want to find the reason that these things are popular is because people want to understand themselves better. And one of the most amazing things, we, we know all these facts. 
you know, we know all that. We, we go to school for a long time and, and you know, we read and we look at YouTube videos and we listen to po- podcasts like yours and mine. And, and we learn, we learn lots and lots and lots of facts. But the thing that's most obscure is the nature of our own souls and especially the nature of our own desire. And so we will weirdly, I mean, I'll, I have a PhD, social scientist, and still I'll take a 16 question internet quiz of dubious quality to understand myself. Your column for The Atlantic is all about the tools for happiness. And in this particular column, you write that researchers found that extroverts are usually happier than introverts on balance. We'll get to this later in the episode, but I was quite surprised by this. Why is this? Why are they usually found to be happier? It really has nothing to do with extroversion or introversion. It has to do with how uh, introverts and extroverts relate to other people. So you find that extroverts are constantly talking to others about their hopes and dreams. And talking to other people, dreaming about a better future is something that just uniformly brings happiness. Whereas introverts are very reluctant to do that. Um, I have two extroverted children and one introverted child. And my introverted child, I mean, it's have to poke and prod and, and it's like, what are, you, what are you dreaming about? What do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And finally, I'll get to the truth and she really brightens when she tells me, you know, what, what her hopes and dreams actually are, but she's reluctant to do so. And that's one of the big characteristics is that introverts don't want to open up and share certain things, but opening up and sharing things about your dreams and what's written on your heart, this is something that truly does bring happiness. And that's actually the secret, by the way, Pandora. Introverts don't have to become extroverts. Introverts simply need to become more comfortable doing that. And they can get the secret of happiness without changing their personality at all. That's such an interesting way of looking at it, especially in your own children. If introverts derive their energy source from their internal world and extroverts from the external, broadly speaking. How did that change during the pandemic? Did introverts fare much better? They did. Introverts did a lot better. One of the things that we have found is that doing before and after happiness tests, and there's some very, very good tests for for affect, you know, positive and negative affect. Affect is another word, a way of saying, you know, mood, that introverts became happier during the pandemic and extroverts became a lot unhappier. So the people who suffered the most were those who were cooped up. They didn't have fresh meat. You know, they didn't have, you know, the social interaction that extroverts need. They didn't have the audience that they're used to. Whereas introverts were, you know, being rewarded for doing what they like to do. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, when I I talk about it, it's you know, we, we live in a dog world. Dogs are extroverts, naturally. Cats are introverts, naturally. And, and it's, it's, you know, introverts are like cats living in a dog world. Everybody loves the dogs. People don't appreciate the cats. Well, suddenly the coronavirus epidemic turned us into cat world. And the cats really, really liked it a lot. And the dogs are suffering. The tables have been turned on the people like me. <laughs> Culturally, we reward extroverts a lot more and they tend to be in leadership a lot more. There's also a lot more extroverts than uh, introverts. Do you think in light of the last few years we've had, and as you've said, the cat in a dog world has is, is been slightly changing, do you think the prizing of extroverts or this assumption that they are best for leadership, is that changing? Has that been kind of skewed by the experience of the last few years? We don't know yet. It's a good question. I sort of doubt it. I mean, and part of that is the, the Americanization of the leadership model all around the world. So here in the United States, there is this 
kind of cult of extroversion, the cult of the gregarious personality. I mean, America is the home of, of the self-improvement catechesis, which is kind of a civic religion. And I know that you've spent time in the States and you know that <laughs> we're always talking about, you know, how to win friends and influence people, you know, how to have, you know, the body language that shows that you can dominate the room. This is the stuff that ch tops the bestseller lists in the United States. And every single one of those things celebrates extroversion. That's spread around the world as the American economic model is spread around the world. And so the, the real question is going to be whether or not in the idea economy, whether or not there's a kind of a, 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 a I guess, where the economy becomes, where their leadership becomes less of leading large organizations and rewarding extroverts for doing so, and or, or whether or not that our product, our economic activity is going to become much, much more prized at the individual level for what we do as individuals, simply because we don't have to be together as much as we, we did. We learned in the coronavirus epidemic that people can be unbelievably productive. I mean, I'm in my home studio and you're in your home studio. You're in London, I'm in Boston. And it's as if we were sitting across the table from each other. It's extraordinary. And as that happens, as people start to become more productive alone or in small groups, extroversion might very well become less prized. It's a speculation, but it, I think it's a plausible one. I also wondered, and I might be reaching here and it wouldn't be the first time, but there's been lots of charismatic startup founders and presidents who have been known for being kind of hyper extrovert, very bombastic, who have had these very public takedowns. I'm thinking of Adam Newman from WeWork, for example. Do you think there's an element of extroverts having taken a bit of a beating and introverts who for decades or even a century have had this slightly unfair reputation? I wonder in part due to Freud, because he popularized this idea that they would mute wallflowers. But do you think that we could be seeing the benefits to someone that doesn't necessarily talk the talk, but might more quietly walk the walk? It's possible. Um, you're right about politicians. And part of the problem is that, you, that extroversion can, can tip into sociopathy and narcissism. And so you find that, that narcissists are almost always extroverts and sociopaths tend to be highly extroverted as well because they need, they need fresh victims all the time. And they need the adulation of strangers in the case of, of, of narcissists. In the case of sociopaths, they, people exist in the world to serve them, but you're not going to get anybody to serve you to be your, not necessarily your victim, but certainly your audience if you're not pretty extroverted. And that becomes quite clear in a, <clears throat> in a culture that is rewarding personality characteristics over substance in a very, very big way. And so we see, you know, people like, you know, President Donald Trump, who is incredibly extroverted. And, you know, some people think that he tips into those, those, you know, bad personality pathologies and, and other, a lot of other politicians as well. And, and who knows, could we sour on that? I think we probably could. I mean, how long are we going to keep rewarding people that are actually not very good for us as a society simply because of the cult of the, of the extroverted personality? And I say this with appropriate humility. I say this as an extrovert. I just hope I'm not a narcissist or a sociopath. I slightly wonder if it's possible to be a leader on a global scale or a billionaire without having slipped into pathology. Yeah. Is it possible to actually be a normal person and be either of those? Like they are, by their nature, it's a really extreme status. Yeah, for sure. And now it, th those are two different statuses. So I, I know a lot of pretty introverted billionaires and some people who are extremely socially uncomfortable who are billionaires. They just have created a lot of economic value. 
<clears throat> they've started companies, they've, they've developed new technologies, they've discovered new things, and they've kind of happened into that extreme economic status. But to be a politician or to be a media figure, you'd be exhausted all the time, you'd self-destruct. You have to be the kind of person who, the more you're in public, the more energy you get. It's, it's interesting, and, and one of the problems that you actually, with extroverts who are in very, very public jobs, and when you talk to them, and I, in, which I do frequently, when I'm a, you know, I'm a social scientist specializing in happiness, um, people talk to me as if I were a psychiatrist, which is you know, bad, but interesting for me nonetheless. And when I'm talking to people who are in very, very public jobs and who are extremely extroverted, one of the, the, the problems that they have is that they very quickly can't relate to people in ones and twos anymore. They can only relate to people in hundreds and thousands. <clears throat> and so they, they basically, they, they're, they are themselves. They are the most authentic, human, loving versions of themselves when there's a thousand people in the audience or a hundred thousand people on the other side of the camera. And they're, they get more and more awkward when they have to relate to one single human being, including even their child or their spouse, which is a, that, now that's a really weird pathology. That's really interesting. And actually in a less sociopathic way, I know quite a few people who are very comfortable public speaking, but would feel absolutely terrified going for dinner with five people they've never met. So there must be something in the, that there's something easier about addressing people as a mass rather than a small amount of strangers. I don't think that's got anything yeah. to do with extrovertism and introvertism, but it's quite an interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon for sure. I've met people who seem very introverted in ones and twos and incredibly extroverted when they're in a, in, in, in a large public setting, for sure. My friend and former pod wife Dolly says that there's a millennial tendency to describe yourself as an extrovert masquerading as an introvert. The implication being that you are great fun, but that you're pensive and serious underneath. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that a lot of extroverts are quite keen to deny that status. Well, there's a tendency to to assume that people who are introverted are deeper, that they have more sort of intellectual depth, that they're not just flitting around from person to person. And so w w that's who we reward intellectually. And you know, like the, 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 the the, the, the Oxford scholar who will spend all day alone in the, in the library, as opposed to somebody who's out glad handing somebody on the quad. Those are two really different personalities. And, and what you want is the ability to, you know, have a big following and have a, you know, an enormous audience like you do for your podcast, but to have people think that, you know, deep down you're a professor. I mean, that's, it's, we want the best of all possible worlds. And so we take on, you know, this is my public face, but privately, what I really want is to have a little cottage in Yorkshire and on a cloudy day, be reading books or something like that. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's a, we, truth is we all are both in some, in some measure, but, but in the era of social media where we have people following us who don't even know us, we want to put on a personality, construct a personality, and probably everything, including the public face of extroversion or the private face of introversion that we're trying to give the impression of, they're both probably sort of fiction to a certain extent for all of us. <laughs> That's very humbling. I feel like <laughs> you've slightly got my number there. In your piece for the <laughs> and, Atlantic... And mine too, Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> In your piece for the Atlantic, you talked about what extroverts and introverts can learn from one another. Um, for anyone who hasn't read the piece, can you give us what some of those are? Yeah, so so one of the things that, that extroverts can learn from introverts is that that there can be a, a huge amount of comfort and sustenance and peace 
that actually comes from learning to be by yourself and learning to be still. The learning to be still is a, is a hard skill to learn in our current culture. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because we're rewarded for not being still. And furthermore, the technology that we have accompanying us is incredibly distracting on purpose. You know, we have technologies, particularly social media, that are built to be unbelievably addictive. And they train us to think that if you're still, that you're wasting your time. And so people, they don't even waste their time while they're walking in a crosswalk in busy traffic in downtown London. They'll be looking at their, their cell phones, their iPhone, because that, that would be a waste of time to not be you know, doom scrolling through some you know, idiotic social media. But even that is just keeping us busy. Introverts can help us understand that the, the, the being inside your head can give you a tremendous amount of peace, but you have to practice to do it. So one of the things that I recommend to people who are really extroverted, but very distracted and very stressed out and anxious is to pretend like they're extroverts. Pretend you are the other. And they get a huge amount of peace from it. They'll go to a party and they'll listen to other people. It's like, wow, I just, I learned a lot. And I, I wasn't so stressed out. How wonderful that is. I, I sat on a train and I put my hands in my lap and I, looked out the window and it was a it was like an otherworldly experience this is the key thing that that extroverts can learn from introverts i'm interested where you said i tell them to pretend is it always a pretense could an extrovert and i mean a sort of like let's go for an 85 percent could an 85 percent ever become a 40 percent would they ever want to, to be fair? Maybe let's switch that the other way around. There's more, I feel like there's more of an impetus on introverts to become extroverts. So would it, could a 30% ever become an 80%? During working hours. Uh, in other words, interesting. no. Yeah, so you can put on, you can, you can basically be a different person. It's interesting. So I've, I, you know, I've worked with people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, or tick or even Tourette syndrome. And they can actually, for a number of hours a day, suppress this tendency, but they can't do it permanently. They can suppress it for a certain number of hours. You can put on a different personality with different characteristics for a set amount of time, knowing that there is a time limit on it and get a lot of benefit from it. Now, there are certain things, for example, when you're trying to become a better person, a more virtuous person, a more loving person, and you pretend to be that, you can actually become that. But we're not talking about changing your personality in that in that case. So if you want to be, if I want to be a better and more loving husband, the best way for me to do that is actually to pretend I am that, and to and to pretend that I am that for a week and actually will become that. That's called the as if principle, and a lot of psychologists have looked at the as if principle. You pretend to be the person you want to be, and you will become that. When it's a fundamental personality characteristic like extroversion or agreeableness or openness or neuroticism or conscientiousness, one of these types of things, it's a little bit harder, but you can actually adopt the characteristic of somebody who's a little different than you, do it for a certain period of time and do it quite successfully over a long period of time. So it's kind of the practice makes perfect. Yeah, and, and practice makes you better at it temporarily. I mean, I know a number of pretty introverted people who seem like relatively extroverted leaders at work and then they go home to the quiet of their lives. And they do this for years and they're not split personalities and they're not disturbed and they have a plenty good life. They've just learned how to do that. If it's someone where you're talking about a neurological difference um, or a learning disability, is there a psychological toll of that? I mean, everyone to a degree code switches at work from a professional to a, to a personal setting, but 
Is there a psychological toll from that masking? If you're someone that is deeply introverted, who has to work in an environment that makes it very clear, only really values extrovertism, does that kind of chip away at your soul? It's a question that we don't exactly know the answer to. Um, one of the things that I recommend is that you not take a job that that rewards a personality that's too different than your own. And you know, this is the the key things to look for in any job. By the way, I mean, my last column or my penultimate column a couple of weeks ago in the Atlantic was about actually how to find a job that you will love. And the answer has nothing to do with how much it pays, and has nothing to do with whether or not it's a good match for your skills. Even although I would recommend doing something that's more or less in your skills wheelhouse, it has everything to do with values and people. People who value you and whose values you share, and that that requires that they not be asking you to be somebody dramatically whom you're not. All of us have to be something that we're not sometimes, however. I mean, they're, 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 we, we should be able to elect to go into a role that prizes something that we don't have in great abundance because we want the rewards of that. We want to serve other people in a way that we can't if, we're, if we don't have leadership, for example. And so people who are at the 40th percentile in extroversion, they might want to become a division manager, which requires something at the 60th or 70th percentile in extroversion for a few hours a day and with customers and with clients. And they can elect to do that. That won't suck out their souls. On the contrary, they can give them a better repertoire. But to go to a place that says, basically, I just want gregarious people working for me. And if you're not that, and if I find out you're not, you're going to be fired. Don't take that job. Don't, don't put yourself in that environment. Because then you actually literally have to pretend you're a different person than whom you are, as opposed to simply increasing your repertoire for you know certain times. I wanted to ask you about two very now topics, boundaries okay. and burnout. Are introverts better at boundaries and therefore less likely to burn out? And if you don't have any work-life boundaries, then work has a tendency to take over your whole life and you're likely to burn out. I mean, that's kind of the, the story that we hear all the time. And it's actually not true that introverts are better at that. On the contrary, you know, people who are at home and working, they can just work all the time. And one of the things that you find that, you know, when I'm t perhaps introverts got a lot happier during the coronavirus epidemic, but I'm telling you, I, I have a lot of introverted friends who went up to 80 hours a week at work during the coronavirus epidemic because it was the ideal work situation. It was the perfect ecosystem to reward the introvert. They were making more money than ever. They were, <laughs> it's just amazing. And so the result is they worked and worked and worked. And I think that probably a lot of them got to an unsustainable level of work. So I don't actually think that that's necessarily the case, that just because you're an extrovert, you're less likely to say no to work. I think introverts have, can have trouble with that too. That's really interesting. I did that. I really failed at learning new skills and hobbies. I just worked all the time and found it really useful that I didn't have to slip between kind of working self and social self. I could just look disgusting at my computer all the time and I found it an enormous reliefs. In an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, you described introverts as better at making long-term friendships, whereas extroverts seek novelty and, as you said, fresh meat, and they have a tendency to collect new friends. Again, this made me wonder why culturally we have tended to fetishize extroverts, as they sound quite flaky compared to the reliable, energy-conserving introvert. Is it because we have always seen more friends as better than less friends. And it's only kind of now, I feel like it's only recently that we've really been looking at how robust our social circles are. And maybe that's because they've now grown to an unsustainable 
point with all of the social circles that we now keep online um maybe that's why we're now looking at how robust those relationships are and it's no longer the optimum to have more friends yeah it's it's a good question um I like the question a lot. And I think that there is a more is better, more is better, more is better mentality about everything. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because you you find and you see this in the most extreme example where in the dating market, for example. So there's very, very clear data that the number of partners that leads to the optimal number of happiness. um, And do you know what the number is? Take a guess. In one's lifetime, the optimal number for maximum happiness. You know what it is? Uh, Fifteen. One. One. Really? One. This is a real conundrum in in our happiness equations as people. Your brain wants you to reproduce. Your brain wants you to accumulate. You want more animal skins than the guy in the next cave. You want more buffalo jerky all saved up for the winter. You want more <laughs> you want more sex partners because you want to pass on your genes. I mean you've got you've got troglodyte genetics. That, but you know what? Mother Nature couldn't care less if you're happy because happiness is not something that is, that is uh, genetically favored. It's a nice to have genetically. And so the result of it is that we have all of these proclivities and all of these urges to crank through more relationships and more people and more partners and more money and more stuff and more Instagram followers and and on and on and on. And it's not making us happy. On the contrary, it's making us unhappy. And if we want to be happy, we have to take it under our control and stand up to ourselves and to be at war with these tendencies. Or we're just going to be, you know, have the same genetic proclivities as protozoa and just keep doing this stuff that doesn't make us happy. And that's a good example. But one partner is, given that we're going to live for 100 million years in about 20 years time that's a completely that's a completely answer it wouldn't that then bring quite a miserable life trying to uh stay with the same person when you've been through so many different personalities so many of your own animal skins in that time well it, it some people have a hard time doing that to be sure but a lot of the reason that people have such a hard time doing it is that they're they think that they will be happier if they don't and so when you actually pull back the, the truth, the veil on this, and you tell people, I've got the secret of happiness for you and your relationships. It, really? What is it? Is it dating more people? Is it getting more variety? I mean, that is such a strong dopaminergic phenomenon that it has a, it's a, it has a, 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 an actual name. It's called the Coolidge effect. And you see it with mice where you put in a new partner into their cage and they go berserk, even though like the mice all look the same. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. Well, not to them, apparently. I was going to say, they, they would say the same about us. I know. They, they would, wouldn't they? And, and, but variety stimulates dopamine in a big way, but, but that doesn't actually bring happiness at all. And so you can really help people a lot by saying your urges are not the secret to your happiness. And when it, particularly when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to the, the closeness of a few friends and your one romantic partner, the more that you invest in that, the happier that you can actually get, you'll have less variety. You will have to c- contend with your urges to get out and get new friends and see new people and sleep with new people if that's your thing. 
But if you can contend with that, you will in the end be a much, much happier person. This is like giving somebody the the secret, giving somebody the, you know, the big, and, and you know, it goes against what a lot of our culture says, certainly what a lot of social media culture says, but it, the data, the data, this is just truth. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. You obviously write and research a lot about happiness and we're always told or we're often told that kind of the key to happiness is to be in touch and in tune with your authentic self. And I'm kind of fascinated with this whole idea of authenticity and I think it can slightly tie people up in knots that they're desperately trying to find this one authentic self when actually I think there were a lot of different selves with a lot of different facets. But of introverts and extroverts, um, and again, I know this is broadly speaking, I know lots of people have characteristics from both, but is there one type that tends to live a more, live a more authentic life than the other? And is that to do with kind of the in intrinsic and the extrinsic? Is one more able to resist external pressure than the other? Not necessarily. Uh, one of the problems that we all have is that we're all being pushed about by the weather that is our culture. I know plenty of introverts that live authentic lives and extroverts that do as well. The key actually, Pandora, it's interesting. It's, uh, you know, we talked about a, taking a personality test so you can really understand your level of the big five personality characteristics. And that's interesting as far as it goes. I teach a class at Harvard on happiness and they take 16 happiness and personality tests. But the real way for you to live authentically is, is to uncover the one thing that most people truly don't understand about themselves. And that's the nature of their desire. So I have two boys and a girl and my older sons. And I remember when they were little, I would say, you know, I could ask them, you know, what kind of dinosaur is that? And they would tell me it's a giganotosaurus or, you know, they, what kind of construction equipment is that? That's an auger driller. They knew all these facts. But then I would say to my son, Carlos, I'd say, Carlos, are you feeling sad? And he would give me this mystified look, like I had asked him to, to perform complex calculus or differential equations or something. Like this is the weirdest question I could possibly ask. And I realized as they grew up that they actually didn't get remarkably better at understanding the nature of their own desire. What do you want? And that's the reason that the Buddhists and the Jesuits and virtually every relatively esoteric spiritual and philosophical tradition has discernment at the heart of enlightenment. And discernment is not, what should I do? It's, what do I want? <laughs> That's the hardest question of all to answer. Is discernment anything to do with integrity? Because I feel like integrity as well is knowing what you want and going for it, despite what other people may think. 
Yeah, it, it's, it certainly does in a lot of cases. But more than anything else, it's that we're told what we should want all the time. And it doesn't match up very much with what we really do want. And so we'll go through life. And, you know, I see this all the time because I teach at a fancy university in the United States. And, and I have very talented students. And they go through their lives hearing that they're great students and they're smart and that they, they're going to be really successful. And what they should want to do is to go work for a hedge fund or a private equity firm or a venture capital firm or in Silicon Valley or go to London's financial district. They should want to get rich and they should want to be famous and they should want to have power. And they're told what they should want. And it often isn't what they want. And they've never done the hard work of discernment to find out. So when we talk about personality and, and to get back to your question of integrity, desire and integrity, what it really means is figuring out truly what it is that you want and seeing whether or not that that desire is in line with your values. Do I want to want what I want? I mean, I realize that it's becoming kind of solipsistic at this point, but the we need to get in touch with these questions if we want to have integrity, if we want to be happy, if we want to be at peace, we need to answer these questions. So we should spend more time thinking about what we want and less time thinking about who we are, less time thinking about whether or not we're an extrovert or an introvert, or do I want to go to that party? Did I enjoy that party? Yes, but if you think about what you want, then you would just not go to the party. Yeah, yeah. Do you not think you have to slightly force, isn't there an element of discipline sometimes to be like, yeah. I'm not going to necessarily listen to that voice because if I always listened to that voice, I would just opt out of everything. For sure. And you know, what you want, by the way, when you get that information, one of the reasons that people don't have that information is because they can't face the truth because everything that you want isn't good. But you can't make, you can't make important changes to yourself, to your life, until you until you stop lying. So it's not enough to say that have enough integrity, you have to know what you want and it's automatically good because it's not automatically good. I want a lot of things I shouldn't want, <laughs> but until I face up to it, I can't actually change those desires and, and put them in line with my underlying values and become the person that I truly wanna be. So that's where the discernment comes in, the sifting between the, the desires. What about in romantic relationships? Is the ideal, you know, we talk about yin and yang in a relationship. Is the ideal coupling an introvert and an extrovert or do they drive each other mad? <laughs> That's a really good question. My wife is at the 95th percentile. I'm in the 96th percentile. And it's been daggers drawn for 30 years. We've had... 10,000 arguments because that's about how many days we've been married. <laughs> like maybe 20,000 because it's like two a day, you know, and, and so there's definite advantages. It's extremely passionate, but at the same time, it's hard, you know, and, and so on the other hand, opposites don't attract. There's a weird equilibrium, Pandora. It's an interesting thing. If you go back 100 years, the what people taught about marriage and relationships and romance because this was the first time only about 125 years ago or so were people getting married on the basis of of mutual attraction before that the idea of this is the person i'm passionately in love with would be like so so what's your point you know getting married is so that you can you know run a shoe store together or run a farm together but you know the that we've had the, the the luxury of actually saying that we're we got married because we loved each other so much which is a ton of pressure by the way but the initial psychology that surrounded that was that opposites would attract because they would find each other so exotic and interesting that's completely turned on its head to even more catastrophic effect today you know the problem with dating apps you notice that the data show pretty clearly that that sex is down 
for people in their 20s today compared to what it was in the 1980s and 1990s. The likelihood of saying you're in love is 30% lower today than it was when I was in my 20s. 30% lower. And, and at the same time, we have much better tools for people to meet each other and fall in love. And that's the biggest problem that we have at dating apps. One of the things that I recommend is that if people are having a hard time finding somebody that, that's attractive, having a hard time staying with relationships, get off the apps because the apps are setting you up with your brother. And that turns out not to be that hot. That is really interesting about the dating apps. And also that note that you had about the pressure it puts on relationships when you're actually in love. Esther Perel writes about that in Mating in yeah. Captivity, about how it's so much harder to stay married now because, yeah, it used to be just that, as you say, you were running the farm together, but now you expect someone to be your lover and your best friend as well. And uh -huh. a marriage can't, yeah. can't take all those different uh, roles at once. You mentioned your children earlier, and I was wondering what would be your advice or your view on an introvert parenting an extrovert child or vice versa? I know that you have said you're not a psychiatrist, so um, <laughs> I'm not asking you this as a psychiatrist, more as someone that just observes human behavior. Can it be difficult to get on a level? If you are a very quiet person, you have an exceptionally loud child, how can you sort of avoid being mortified by them and sort of encouraging them to tone themselves down and vice versa if you are a, a, a very loud uh, or social person and your child wants to hide under your skirt and you know every time you go somewhere you go oh come out come out don't be rude don't be rude which is something we hear a lot with shyness you know don't be rude yeah. where are your manners um, how yeah. do you think you can sort of meet in the middle so that you don't give each other crippling anxieties well, you don't give your children crippling anxieties for the yeah. next 75 years. Yeah. Your children are unlikely to give you crippling. I mean, your children will give you crippling anxieties, but in the way that all children always have to their yeah. parents. <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> that's that's sort of the nature of the, especially when they're, your kids are little, when they're teenagers, I mean, it's just the worst because they, they're, you're, they're giving you a tremendous amount of meaning, but at the same time, there's a lot of unhappiness that comes with it, but that's with the territory. The problem is, as you suggest, the other direction, where you're trying to pound your child's personality into a different mold. And the reason is because you think that something that makes you happy must make everybody happy, especially the person who's really close to you, really, and or related to you. Now, interestingly, my youngest child, who's the introvert, she's the cat, the family cat. Um, she's adopted. And so she's actually not biologically related to me. But still, there have been times when I'm like, come on, come on, just, you know, you're lonely. I know you're lonely. You need to get out there. You need to pretend that you're more of an extrovert. And I've done, I, I don't really regret it because she forgives me. But at the same time, it wasn't especially good advice. The key thing is to actually learn from each other, including learning from your kids. Um, looking for the way that they can be as happy as they can be, given the parameters of their own uh, of their own personality, and you know, as opposed to trying to project your own autobiography onto the screen that is your child. Okay, what is who is my child? What is her personality? What actually makes her happy? How can I make that easier, and at the same time help her to grow as a human being? Is there an element of fear with extroversion? I was thinking about this the other day with my daughter who's three. She's, I would say, extremely e extroverted. She is very social and she never stops talking. And when I asked her why she never stopped talking, she said that she didn't like quiet. She found the quiet scary. Not to psychoanalyze her too much. Um, but is there an element of needing to be loud to hide your fears or your, your neurosis and that to be quiet 
is to be a clown without makeup. I suppose that comes back to the kind of whether or not you're leading um, your uh, authentic life, your discerning life. No doubt that that does exist for certain people. You know, there. If if I'm screaming, then the screaming inside my head seems like it's not there. That sort of phenomenon. But I think with a lot of extroverts, I mean, it's interesting that she should say that. But a lot of extroverts, what they find is that they they just like a good party, and if it's not going on, they're going to make it. And you know, there's just so much for extra. Is it extroverts lead, lead an interesting life? Um, insofar as all of life is like an Egyptian bazaar that you're walking through full of <laughs> shiny things that you want to touch. Now, it's a great thing because you're more likely to get raises at work and, and plaudits and applause and, and rewards. At the same time, extroverts, by the way, are much more likely to be murdered. They're much more likely to have their marriage fail because of infidelity. They're much more likely to get addicted to drugs and alcohol. Why? Because they want to try everything. That's what extroverts do under the circumstances. So they face other pressures. And every introvert listening to us right now is like, yeah, serves them right. <laughs> I know, this is very jolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is that you're, what you're, I think what your daughter is saying is that life needs more parties. And so I'm going to make them. <laughs> I'll tell her that that's, what, uh, that that's what you're saying. I'm sure she will. She has a very big imagination. So I think she'll probably enjoy that. <laughs> I wanted to end by asking about in Quiet, Susan Cain wrote that most great ideas spring from solitude, which I personally agree with, as I've, as I've always found working in, I don't anymore, but I used to work in an open plan office when I was at a newspaper. And mm. I found the environment of walk, working alongside other people and noise incredibly difficult. As a 96% extrovert, do you have mm. to force yourself to incorporate solitude into your day? The truth is we all need both. We all, it doesn't matter if you're at the 99th percentile or the first percentile, you need both. You, you will not thrive, but for relationships, to be in relationship, in love relationships with other people, and you will not thrive if you don't have peace and you don't have some solitude and you don't have some quiet. And the key thing is actually, once you figure out the nature of your own desire, figuring out how you can instantiate that desire. So for me, my, my work is fundamentally creative. I don't actually know what I think about something unless I'm talking about it. When I talk about it, then it then it it comes to life. Then it is actually alive. But then I can't develop it if I'm talking. I actually have to sit down and work. And so I have a routine where all morning, every except for when I'm teaching, all morning, every morning, every day, I have the entire morning for my creative work, and I have a, an office that's separated from the rest of the house. Not because, and you know, it's now what I have to do is I have to curb my tendency to wander upstairs and bother my wife. You know, it, it's like, hey, honey, let's talk about, I don't care, anything. Why? Because I'm trying to distract myself because I want some human interaction. I have to keep myself as a matter of basic discipline in the solitude so I can develop the ideas is what it comes down to. But I know how to generate those ideas, which fundamentally comes from the extroverted side of my personality. If I were an introvert, almost certainly my ideas would spring from the solitude as well. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for telling me all about a cat dog world and for finally letting me know that I'm an extrovert with introvert tendencies. <laughs> Thank you, Pandora. Thank you for this conversation. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? from any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life. <laughs>